Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the sectarianism proxies and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Mabin, and today I'm joined by Raffaella Moriello. Uh, Raffaella is a, an assistant professor at the Faculty of Persian Literature and Foreign Languages at Alameh Tabatabai University in Tehran, and he's the author of, of a range of articles and books relating to Iran, Shia politics, and, and Islam. So it's really exciting to, to get a different voice, a different type of, of context to some of the things that we've been talking about. So Raffaella, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. It's really exciting to uh, to, to talk to you. Uh, I've been reading your work for for a long time now, so it's it's really exciting to connect and to um, to talk to you a little bit about what you've been doing. So, can you uh, can you tell us how you got interested in in Shiism and and Islam and Iran, please? Yeah, uh, that came through my bachelor at the University of Rome, La Sapienza, and then later my PhD at the same university. Uh, for some decades, uh, the University of Rome La Sapienza, in particular under my professor that uh, recently retired, like, I think five to seven years ago, Bianca Maria Scarcia Moretti, uh, specialized in Shia Islam, where many people were not really taking care of the issue and has become mainstream. Thanks to God, we have very good research. But, you know, just uh, 10 years ago or 20 years ago, it was very undeveloped field. It's not related to the revolution itself in Iran, but generally speaking, the Shias in Bahrain, in Iraq, in Lebanon, still were uh, really understudied. So I did my uh, thesis uh, for the BA. There we have a thesis on Muhammad Bakir Assad on the role of the Mujtahid in contemporary society. And then I went on with my PhD uh, starting with a, a, an idea about the role of the ulama in uh, Najaf following the revolution in Iran, but then found out that it was very complicated because at that time I couldn't go to Iraq. So I moved that uh, to specializing even more on the subject that was, again, developed by my uh, former professor uh, at the University of Rome La Sapienza on the descendants of the family of the prophet, the so-called Sadat. Yeah. So one of my uh, the things that I've been working a lot and this is my PhD that then was published as a special issue of an, Iranian, an Italian academic journal and won the prize for best book of the year in Iran, uh, is about some families of descendants uh, of the Prophet, in particular the Assad family, Al-Hakim, Bahalulun and Hakim, and the Hui, and their role in after the revolution up on the current days. It's really fascinating stuff, and I, I can understand why it would be quite complex to to do what you initially wanted to do on, on Najaf yeah. without being able to go into Iraq, of course. Yeah, but at the time it was impossible. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Can we go back to, to the decision that that you took even um, before you started your undergraduate studies, though? What was it about, uh, about Islam in particular that, that got you interested to the point that you were wanting to study that as, a, as an undergraduate subject? Yeah, um, again, it really comes back to my former supervisor in the sense that I wanted to sell languages. Sure. So, as, you know, anyone speaks English and French in Italy is very common. Others. So 
just choose, I, I wasn't decided between Arabic and Japanese, but right. because as an Italian, we have, you know, very, it's very close to go to Tunis or to Egypt, I generally decided Arabic. So I, I enrolled at the University of Rome La Sapienza in Oriental Languages and Civilizations, and I started, but the, when I went the first lesson, the first year of Islamic studies, I was just fascinated. I just, like, I, I fell in love in the very first day because it's very a fascinating civilization, or at least as a, a scholar, I look at it as a civilization with, you know, a brilliant art, um, a, a very complex societies throughout the Muslim world. So sometimes, you know, just get to the Near East, and I'm specialized in the Near East, but Islam, you know, you, you can study from Morocco to Indonesia. There are different societies, different languages. So it's fascinating. And for me, what is really interesting, that is a great paradigm to understand uh, history and societies in general. So I'm specialized in Islamic studies, but through studying Islamic Muslim societies, I really got to understand many issues about colonialism, my own society, just because it's so diverse and so complex, uh, but at the same time so close to my education, because coming from the south of Italy, I grew up in a family, uh, in a religious family, if you wish, and, you know, so I went to the church, so I had the religious education, and uh, that is very similar, although at the same time very different from what you find in the near release in places where Egypt, where I lived three years, in Tunis, where I studied two times, in Lebanon, in Syria, and from my perspective, as one that, someone that grew up in a Catholic society in Italy, in Iran and in Shia Islam, because at least to my understanding, there are so many similarities. The way religion is perceived as a national issue in Italy and uh, religion is perceived as a national issue in Iran. That's it's really fascinating. And I guess uh, we can come on to some of the stuff that you've done comparing or, or looking at links between Iran and the EU in, yeah. in a little bit. But I wonder, yeah. can you tell us a little bit more about this this comparison between Italy and, and Iran and the, the sort of the nationalist dimensions of, of religion? Because to many, that would seem to be a bit of a a bit of an oxymoron, a bit of incongruence there. Yeah, the, you are perfectly correct. This comes from Gramsci, actually. Gramsci didn't write anything about Iran. But he wrote many things about Italy, <laughs> and sure. he pointed out very brilliantly how uh, to many Italians, in particular in our history, but again, in particular in the south of the country, religion and the state, I mean, the Italian history are the same. So we have the Pope that, you know, is in certain respect the head of state of a specific country, the Vatican, that is in Italy. But it, that's so entrenched in our culture that I remember my grandma, when I was a child, uh, the, the Queen of England came on TV and my grandma told me, oh, so this is the lady that went against the Pope, you know, to, and I was really surprised. So the story for her is, was this lady going against the Pope that you, I was representing? I mean, it was just, I was a child at that time. I didn't realize what she was saying. But the idea is very much the, the fact that Catholicism in Italy, and you see, you can see in the recent election we had in Italy, we had this Matteo Salvini coming with the cross at the last meeting and say we want to, you know, it's just uh, this, uh, very much the same as nationalism. I mean, Catholicism and Christianism in Italy is a national issue and is part of the national identity. And in Iran is very much the same. It's almost impossible to disjunct the, the idea of Iran and the idea of Shia Islam. For Iranians, Shia Islam is their religion. They are actually almost even, 
the owner of that religion, if you want. It's what characterized them as Iranian. Well, there is also the history of Persian language, but it's so much entrenched that as an Islamic uh, scholar, Islamic studies expert, sometimes I'm fascinated how much, even in Iran, they overlap and get confused about what is Islamic and what is Iranian. Sometimes they tell me, you know, this, we do this because it is Islamic, but to my understanding, it's not Islamic at all. Or we do this because it's Iranian, but it's not Iranian at all. So for them, there is this perception, and again, it's the same thing in Italy and in Iran, of religion as being part of the national identity. Unfortunately, for several reasons, one of these, the idea of progress, you know, secularism, many scholars understand nationalism as a secularist idea. It mm -hmm. is not at all a secularist idea. And again, it comes to my grandma uh, understanding the Queen of England as the head of the state, that she is of a specific state that gives uh, the people a certain identity and understanding the Pope has given the same identity. And this very much is an idea of Gams from Cramsci that tells us that if you want to understand uh, the history of Italy, you have to understand the history of the Vatican and the history of the Church. It's, it, you cannot just separate them. They overlap and confuse. And in Iran, to me, it's fascinating because it's very similar. And this is one of the things that people don't get about Shia Islam. Shia Islam in Iran is not the same as Shia Islam in Lebanon or Shia Islam sure. in Iraq or Shia Islam in Bahrain. Recently, for, for, but in the last century, Shia have become the relative majority in Iraq and again in Lebanon. But Shia Islam has been the religion of Iran since the 16th century, the early 16th century. And this, the, the religion of the majority of the people. So though Shia Islam is present in different places then, uh, where there is more diversity in Iran, more than 90% of the population is Shia. Is Shia. So you actually, only, you only see Shia people. Then, of course, there are minorities, very small minorities, um, Jewish, uh, that I have in my own place where I live here in, in Tehran. It's one of the places where you have a synagogue close here. Christians, but they are very small communities. So the majority of people you see are Shia Muslims. So you don't have the perception that you are a minority. It's not a minority. And again, Shia Islam is the religion of a very important country, Iran, a very big and powerful country. So this idea of the Shia Islam as the disenfranchised, that is, for example, the idea of Lebanon brought by this guy called Musa Saad, Imam Musa Saad, does not apply to Iran, where Shia Islam has been the religion of the state for now six, seven centuries. It's it's really interesting hearing you say this, and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that, that what you're talking about is... is clearly theological and, and concerns religion, but it's also inherently yeah. political. And yes. as someone who was, who was trained uh, as, as a linguist and as someone who has a, a background in Islamic studies, I wonder what, what, what does that give you in terms of approaching these fundamentally political questions? What, what benefits does it give you? Yeah, that is an important uh, issue. Again, this is why... Uh, the very idea, you know, that uh, this is why I'm, I'm, I mean, I understand Islam as a civilization, because if you call it a religion that can be 
it, you, you lose the perspective, at least to my understanding. This is why I'm telling you that, for example, Islam and Shia Islam overlap in Iran between Iranianism and being Muslim. It's very difficult to separate. So it's not about a religion in the modern idea of religion that has been fashionable for some decades in Europe, although now we are very in a very different situation, yeah. but this very idea that, you know, you separate religion, and it's not true anywhere in many places. I mean, it's not true in the United States of America, when a very important part of foreign policy is based on some specific religious groups. It's not true of Italy, where, okay, you get the state, the, the, the state is uh, not religion by definition, but any head of state in Italy always refers to the Vatican and to religion. So, okay, according to the law, there are two separate things. But then in reality, in the way the law is applied, even, I was looking yesterday, uh, uh, you know, at uh, news from Italy, and there was this head of um, of this uh, of some part of um, the government that was discussing about economic issues, and there was a cross behind him in a public office in Italy. So for me, that is the way I, I, I grew up. So it's normal, although it's perceived as not normal in different places, but that that, as an Italian, helped me understand the way it works in Iran, where, you know, to separate religion and politics, it doesn't make sense because it's not something concrete. I mean, it's something that is social, it is cultural, it yeah. is part of the history and this part of the national identity. So there is no way of doing that. Sure. It's just, uh, uh, you can theorize about it, but this doesn't make sense in reality because reality identity is very much complex, but against in Iran is very strong because religious, what you can describe as religious identity, what I call Shia Islam, is very much a national thing. It's very much who we are. Mm, and it, it's really interesting, and it, I can see it raises so many fascinating and important questions for, for both domestic Iranian politics, but also across the region. It can help explain tensions, I guess, and differences between different Shia groups as well. Yes, of course, of course. This is precisely why, for example, if you take the case of Lebanon, as for example, you take the cases of Hezbollah or Amal, that are the two most important political parties, and one is also a military movement, but let's understand them as social and political parties in Lebanon. A way that Amal has been differentiating from Hezbollah, for example, and differentiating from Iran, is precisely by saying that we are Arabs, yeah. because both are Shias. So you're going to say, you know, we are this Shia and yeah, that Shia. What is that we are the original Shia because we speak Arabic. That is the language of the prophet. So it's the way it overlaps, and you have to understand this because, you know, now it's become very fashionable, although recently um, less, to speak about the Shia grand plan of Iran conquering the whole uh, Near East through Shia Islam. It's impossible. First of all, because the very theory that has been applied for politics in Iran, Faki, is specific of the place that it was developed. In the, can, it cannot be exported. You cannot apply Faki in Lebanon. It just can work because it is the product of a culture 
It's a product of a, of a specific place of Iran. This is why one of the reasons they failed. At, at the beginning of the revolution, perhaps they thought they could export the, this model, but it doesn't work because it, is, it's, uh, it comes out from a specific understanding of the history of Shia Islam that I was telling you is very much entrenched with the very idea of the country. And this is not the case in Lebanon. It's not the case in Iran. It's not the case in Iraq. It's not the case in Bahrain. It's not the case in Yemen. Yeah, it's... It's, again, situating religious studies and theology, Islamic studies, right at the intersection of politics and and international politics, regional politics. And I know this is something that, that you've written about. You co-edited a, a volume on Islam and international relations. And yeah. I think it's, it's absolutely fascinating and really important. I wonder if you can tell us a bit about that edited collection, though, Raffaella, please. Yeah, uh, I you know, started, I, I think, kind of six years ago. I established with two scholars, with colleagues. One is uh, a Filipino uh, colleague that uh, studied in Turkey and now is back in the Philippines. One and the other one, uh, Adena Abdelkader, uh, is uh, an Egyptian origin but an American citizen. We created a group that is called International Relations and Islamic Studies Research Cohort. It's an international group. What we do is organize conferences and panels in international uh, fora, to uh, get together people that are studying Islam and the interaction between Islam and international relations. Why? Again, because when we think international relations, if you open a book of international relations, of international relations theory, on the title it says international relations, or international relations theory. But you should have the title, international relations theory of the West. Because when you open the book and you read the people that have been used, the theories, they're all Western people. I yeah. mean, so they refer to Cicero, to Plato, to whoever, but you never find almost, if not a couple, in Khaldun, it just put there, you know, just to have some diversity. But the diversity is not true. And we cannot understand the very idea that historically, the way we have currently international relations as a theory, as a discipline, came out from Europe and then was developed in the United States. So it's very much, a, a, up to now, a Western understanding of how it works. Even diplomacy has been developed in that way. But it doesn't necessarily work when you look at China, when you look at the Muslim world. And for example, I, I've been working specifically on Iran, on the way the constitution, the elements of the constitution of the Islamic Republic of Iran or the international relation theory has been developed in Iran. What they've been trying to do is just to understand the place that Islam plays in this understanding of in the worldwide uh, understanding of the world. So if you want to understand how the current leader of Iran, Ayatollah Khamenei, understands the world, you cannot simply apply European or American theories. You can do that, of course, but you will fall short. Recently, I've been witnessing again the case very simple. This is the case of a fatwa. There's very much a discussion because Ayatollah Khamenei gave different fatwas uh, saying that Iran is, doesn't want uh, a nuclear bomb because the very theory of uh, politics uh, developed by Islam is against nuclear weapon or weapons of yeah. mass destruction. And I have an article specifically on that. But people still, until now, do not understand what is a fatwa. So they've been looking for this document, the stamp on it. But fatwa is something that is so specific of the Muslim culture that you have to, to look from the perspective of the Muslim culture. So my point is, international relations is not perceived as cultural, but it is cultural. And one of the problems that we have 
as anyone knows, China is rising, the Muslim world is necessary, but still very important. If we want to develop a sustainable way of having international relations, we have to bring in other peoples and our understandings of the world, of the role of the human in on the earth, on the way that the state is developed, on the way that institutions. And this comes to another problem, legitimacy. One of the the things mm. that people don't understand about the, the Islamic Republic of Iran. Because if you plant theories about legitimacy from a Western perspective, of course you think that uh, the current leader doesn't have legitimacy. But you cannot do that. I mean, you, you fail. This is why you understand what is going on. But if you look at the very history of the way Islam has been be perceived and what has been developed, you see that the theory that has been applied in Iran, and to a certain extent, actually, it works, although it's very peculiar, makes sense within the history of the Islamic civilization, of the specificities of Shia Islam, and the specificities of Shia Islam in Iran. But if you only apply Western theories, you won't get the same idea. But one of the reasons that the Islamic Republic of Iran until now has been working, because with all the problems that you have, with all the discussions that you have with Islam, still to a certain extent and to many people, it makes sense. So to many people, the current leader of the Islamic Republic of Iran has legitimacy, like it or not. And he himself explains this legitimacy according to a different history, to the history of his own civilization. That, of course, it's complicated by the fact that because of colonialism, this over, even understanding of uh, um, uh, Islam has changed even in Muslim countries because it has been entrenched with also Western culture. So it's very uh, an overlapping of layers, but still, if you want to understand a country like Iran or Turkey or Pakistan, you need to have a knowledge of the Islamic civilization. You need to have a knowledge of the local languages. You need to have the knowledge of how uh, society is structured uh, and how this structure, these institutions came about. So every time I try to explain the institutions of the Islamic Republic of Iran, that is a very complex system, I always have to make reference to Western theory, but also to Islamic theory. And it is what it is. And you cannot explain it only according to Western theories of legitimacy or uh, institution building. Of course, yeah, and I'm, I'm certainly sympathetic to, to that view. <laughs> well, I remember, can you uh, give any guidance to, to people who wish to get involved with your network, Raffaella? What, what should people do if they want to get involved? Yeah, first of all, we have a website that is www.coarvis.net. So, first of all, they can follow what we do. And then we organize at major conferences of Islamic studies or international relations panels. For example, we have been very active within the Pan-European International Studies Association. And we have organized almost in, in the last five years, four times. And we have also this year, uh, it will be in Sofia, the meeting. What, what we, it is relevant to people that are listening to us. We also established a two-book series on Islam and international relations, one with Gerlach Press, that is called Islamic International Relations. In, the, in this case, we're publishing particularly a PhD thesis that have been, of course, revised, but monographs, academic monographs. And recently, we established, a, uh, again, a book series with Palgrave that is called, um, 
if I'm not wrong, because just this year we, uh, we signed the contract, is <laughs> Islam in Global Affairs. Wonderful. And we also launched uh, an, an, an academic journal published by Brill that is the International um, Journal of Islam in Asia. The first number will be out in next year, 2020. So people that want to interact with us, we are very open and um, very happy to receive proposals for, you know, publishing a book or publishing a, an article in our flagship journal. But it's about very much a networking, putting sure. together resources that are out there and trying to make uh, sense of how the way that Islam interacts with international theory. Sure. Uh, so anyone that wants to join us, we are very open and, you know, happy to see anyone joining us. Fantastic. And I'm sure it'll be of interest to a number of our listeners. And I'll, I'll tweet out links and share links yeah. on the uh, on, on the pop- podcast website on SoundCloud. Many thanks. I, we've taken up a great deal of your time, Rafaela, but I have I have one final question, if I may. And it, it concerns a, a potential slide towards relativism. And I'm I'm certainly sympathetic yeah. to the idea that that IR theory, when it's applied beyond the Western world, can be problematic and you can miss out a, a range of different issues. But when you're talking about the, the importance of institutions and the importance of, of socio-political context and culture, I wonder if, if that poses challenges in the sense that the, the IR theory for, say, understanding Iran would then be dramatically different to the cultivation of a theory to explain Saudi Arabia and Qatar and Pakistan. I, I, I uh, wonder what... Yeah, that is, I mean, that is a, a wonderful question. I mean, uh, uh, let me say clearly that although I see, for example, Islam as a scholar, as a civilization, I not, do not believe at all in relativism. I mean, it's not the way I see things. It's not that because we have to respect cultures that we have to respect everything. I mean, so, for example, I'm against the death penalty in Iran, and there is mm. the death penalty, and that's, all, every time I have the occasion to speak with someone in the government, I tell them, you know, this is not right. Although you can explain that through the Quran and everything, but still I do not accept as a human being that. Sure. But it doesn't mean that you can get to an overall understanding, but the point is that to open the discussion. My understanding of this idea of Islamic international relations is explained to people like that. It's just to add the the chapter. If you open now very modern or fashionable books about international relations, you find uh, chapters about uh, feminist understanding of international relations or the role of uh, the earth or, you know, of the green ideas about international relations. Why do not have a chapter about Islamic international relations? It's not about to have the old book, but among the theories and the possibilities of looking at it, why we, in, are, are we against adding a single chapter that helps us enrich the theories of international I think it's a really valid question and an important yeah. question that that I'm pleased to see that you and your colleagues involved in the network are, are trying to pursue and and I hope that, that listeners will pick up the baton and, and join yeah. the quest to to explore this further because it's certainly an important and timely area of, of, of study, particularly in light of everything that's going on in the Middle East, in light of yeah. sectarian difference and all of these things coming together. So it's a really important project and I'm pleased that that you're at the vanguard of it, Raffaella. So, um, yeah, thank you for, for doing the intellectual legwork. Yeah, many thanks. I'm, you know, help, you know, just trying to bring the energy that we have. 
And again, our group is very open. So anyone that wants to join, I mean, we are very happy because our um, uh, goal is just to enrich academia, to diversify academia. We This is why our group is one Philippine, some colleague from the Philippines, one from Italy based in Iran and Egyptian based in the United States. I mean, the more diverse, the better. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. It's been an absolute pleasure and really, really thought-provoking stuff. So uh, I look forward to talking with you again sometime about it all. Many thanks for inviting me and for having me. It's a pleasure. So until next time, thanks for listening.